And uh, I'm sitting there, I'm working on my post 28 kilometer flight. <laughs> and, and, I'm, and I'm working on this beer. And uh, one of the locals comes into the bar and uh, he mentions to the bartender, he goes, hey, there's a glider over in the field. Did you see it? And the bartender says, yeah. And there's the pilot. <laughs> this is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you for joining us for another soaring adventure here on the podcast. A big thank you also. We have two new Patreon pilots, William LaFollette and Stuart Reynolds. We appreciate your support. If you want to join in helping us spread the word about this podcast, you can become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash soaring the sky or go to our website soaringthesky.com we have a great episode lined up for you today i'm excited i had so much fun chatting with our guest chris fleming he's going to be joining us from the french alps now chris took the opportunity as an airline pilot to soar in as many locations as he could but he found his soaring paradise there in the french alps so he decided to move there so he could fly there more often now today we chat about his many adventures and the important things he's learned along the way, and what it takes to fly in that kind of terrain with little to no landing options. Now, we also get into thermaling, convergence, wave, cockpit updates, exterior glider care, flarm, and even talk about the new 360 camera that he just started using for his flights on his YouTube channel. And we'll put a link in the show notes for you so you can check that out. Chris is also a big promoter of cross-country soaring as well. So a lot of great stuff to talk about. So we're going to get into that here in a minute. Oh, and don't forget to stick around after our chat with Chris because Sergio, the soaring master, has another great segment for us. And this time it's about effective thermaling. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Chuck. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for taking your time to do this. So as we ask everyone here on the podcast, how did all this get started for you? How did you start your aviation journey? Uh, it started a long time ago in my mind. It didn't start uh, until I was out of high school uh, for, for reality. Grew up in western Pennsylvania, poor, typical western uh, Pennsylvania family. Uh, didn't have any money to do anything other than uh, the basic necessities. So it wasn't until uh, years later when uh, my situation changed that uh, I was actually able to pursue a career in aviation. Uh, but my love from the very beginning was always gliders, just to, just like the difference between ocean liners and sailboats. Uh, it's a completely different thing. And uh, it wasn't until years later, I was well on my way of building my career. And I was sitting at an FBO uh, with my captain waiting for a load of freight to be put on the airplane. And while we were waiting, I noticed a soaring magazine sitting on the coffee table. And I mentioned uh, that uh, soaring was actually my original love. And uh, even though I never had a chance to even take a lesson, and uh, he actually mentioned that just down the street from where I was living in El Paso, Texas at the time, uh, was a glider club. And uh, my jaw hit the floor. And that weekend, I was out at the club, signed up and sitting in the front seat of a Schweitzer 233, fulfilling my original love. 
and it's been soaring cross countries ever since. Nice. Now, during our pre-interview, you had mentioned about moving to France some years back, so you were able to fly in the French Alps. Can you tell us all about that and what you've been up to in the last few years? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, uh, one of the advantages of being an airline pilot is uh, the benefit is you get to travel the world for free or very close to free. And I took advantage of those travel benefits by traveling to different soaring sites and uh, finding out uh, what those people have learned. And uh, I had started to race in the States. I was self-taught, uh, uh, like probably a lot of your listeners. And uh, when I started branching out and flying at other places and started flying uh, at contests, I realized that I was doing a lot of things wrong and some of those things were quite dangerous. So I decided that I was going to take uh, uh, weeks long training courses. And I ended up at a small, well, uh, not a small club, it's a, a large club, but in a small town in the Southeast of uh, France, it's called Fayence. It's uh, just off of the French Riviera, about 45 minutes by car inland, and uh, started learning from some really talented individuals uh, that showed me some pretty amazing things that you can do with a glider. And after a couple of these uh, weeks-long training courses, I realized that uh, these training courses were not going to ever be enough to teach me the things that I needed to know in order to fly uh, safely uh, in the mountains, which was always a goal of mine. Uh, so I decided I can live here. So I sold the things that I couldn't pack. I packed everything else and uh, moved to the south of France and have been flying in the French Alps uh, uh, full time ever since. I commute back to New York every month to uh, fly the airliners, but uh, it's a small price to pay in order to live in soaring paradise. Yeah, I'd say you're living the dream, right? To be able to soar there. Live <laughs> living there, the awesome. dream. <laughs> <laughs> that's the goal, right? <laughs> that's it. Can, can you tell me a little about Fiance, the airport itself, the altitude, the surrounding terrain, types of lift you have, and maybe what clubs operate out of there, and how many members, you know, the whole thing? Oh, let's see. That's a... Uh, a, a lot of questions all wrapped into one. It's, it's, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll try to go down a bullet list. Uh, it's a large club. I don't know how many members there are, but it's measured in the hundreds. Uh, we have uh, a very large uh, training program and uh, we, uh, they, they, they track these uh, statistics at the national level uh, at all the clubs in Fayence consistently ranks number one club in uh, France. Uh, and it's not just measured by how many students uh, we train and how many certificates we have, but it's also, there's lots of variables in that equation and uh, cross-country soaring is one of them. Uh, they, they rank points. And so you get a point for every cross-country kilometer flown and uh, you get points for different badges being issued. You get points for how many licenses you issue. And so all those things added together, Fayence ends up being number one as measured by uh, the French National Soaring Organization. Let's call it the French SSA. So a lot of your American listeners will understand who I'm talking about. Right. But as far as the uh, airport, it's doing the conversion from metric to uh, uh, English. It's 226 meters, which is just shy of 750 feet, I think. 
Um, we're 45 minutes by car off of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, the, the Alps come all the way down to the sea in some places. Um, the first several, I'll say, guess 50 kilometers of mountains are referred to as the first waves because they uh, are long ridges uh, which are softer than the harsh Alps of further north, kind of resembling the uh, Appalachians in the Western states. Uh, but rather than running from uh, northeast to southwest, it's due west and due east. And as far as uh, so- soaring conditions, uh, we have everything. You just check all of the boxes. Uh, uh, Fiance's original claim to fame was the wave box. Uh, airspace is a lot tighter in Europe, and there aren't many places for people to climb uh, to get their 5,000 uh, meter gain in order to get the diamond badge. And uh, Fiance was one of those places that we can do it. We have a wave window directly above the airport, which I believe now goes up to flight level 235 or 23,500 feet. Nice. Uh, some of us now use it as a as a as a launch pad. We uh, climb up in the window and then switch over to air traffic control to get a clearance out of the box horizontally, so we can make a a high speed dive <laughs> to the north where the airspace <laughs> is much wider open. Wow! <laughs> and uh, we could get some nice wave flights in. And is there a commercial flight school there on site? Uh, there, there is. It's. It's a hybrid is, I guess, the best way to describe it. Uh, it's first and foremost a club, but we have professional employees. I think there's like a half a dozen employees of the club that are salaried. Uh, and there's a couple of instructors that uh, are, are paid instructors and a whole lot of uh, uh, volunteers. Uh, so nice. the volunteers, of course, are just like uh, any other club. They're there when they can. They do what they can. Uh, but the professional uh, flight instructors are there. Uh, they take turns, of course. They don't work 365 days each, both of them. But uh, there's always going to be an instructor available on any given day out of the year, 365 days a year. Wow, nice. So given the proximity to the French Riviera and all that, I, I'd assume that you get some good convergent conditions that has to open up some interesting flight opportunities to go along with the wave flights, but what times are you typically are the juiciest for convergence? And what about the wave? Well, there's lots of different types of convergence. Uh, it, it's again, it's one of those uh, reasons why the uh, French Alps are uh, so popular for people to come fly. And it's because there's just all the boxes are checked. Uh, yes, there is a convergence that comes off of the Mediterranean Sea, it is, of course, soarable, but it's not always a soarable, friendly convergence. Uh, there's uh, when when that convergence is is uh, going well, there tends to be an inversion, a low level inversion uh, on the Mediterranean side of the mountain. So you might have to wait until early afternoon in order for that convergence to really help you out. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, the soaring conditions just uh, on the other side of the mountain have been busting since uh, nine o'clock in the morning. So that first convergence doesn't really help us out that much if we're trying to get these monster flights in, uh, uh, high kilometer uh, flights. Uh, But the local pilots do get to uh, a lot of practice in that Mediterranean Sea generated convergence. The much, much stronger convergence is the one that runs uh, pretty much north-south that separates the uh, 
Italian flatlands with the French highlands. Uh, when those two air masses collide, we have convergence going up into uh, 20,000 feet. And uh, oh, wow. we can't always soar that high again because of the airspace restrictions. But uh, you can really uh, push some high uh, cross-country speeds in that convergence. You know, we're coming out of the off-season now, and people are getting excited to get back in the glider. But what soaring-related projects or goals did you work on in the off-season? Uh, we... Fortunately, we don't have very much of an off season. Uh, it's we call it maintenance season. <laughs> so when the uh, when, gotcha. when, when the when the thermal there, there's always a, a thunderstorm at the end of August that comes through, and it, it's it's like the grand finale. It it just it's just every year at the end of August, the soaring conditions are just booming, and then there's like this one weather line that comes through, and this line of weather moves through. And that's it. it. It's pretty much done for the season. Of course, you can still go flying, but it clear it, it marks the clear end of the 700, 800, 900, 1,000 kilometer thermal flights uh, that we have. Right. Uh, of course, there are several people. Well, I don't want to say several. There are a few. There are a few elites, and I'm not one of them yet, uh, that uh, are able to still pull out some amazing flights, even when these... Uh, typical conditions that the rest of us uh, take advantage of for our long flights, uh, they do some amazing flights. Just to give you an example, if you'll indulge me on uh, just one example of uh, a flight that is just amazing out of here. Uh, we have one pilot. His name is Baptiste Innocent. I don't think he would mind me dropping his name with your listeners. He, he, he's just he's just an amazingly talented uh, young man. Uh, uh, he last... September, I believe it was, and it, this isn't the first time he's done a flight like this, uh, launched at sunrise. So it was like at six, just past six something in the morning in September, climbed in the mountain wave directly above Fayence, like I mentioned earlier. And when he got up to 19,500 feet, which is the, the highest the, you can climb where the air traffic controllers will even consider you uh, the author, the authority to fly out of the wave box, out the side. Um, uh, the wind was out of the northwest, and he turned to the southeast, and he departed downwind out of the wave. As I have already mentioned, that's where the Mediterranean Sea is. He went out to Corsica, so he crossed over the top of the Mediterranean Sea uh, in mountain wave, climbing in a couple of these uh, undulations downwind and arrived down at Corsica at just a few thousand feet and reconnected with the wave down there and climbed back up and then went back out over the sea to Italy and went from the center of Italy back up to the north into the Alps and came back into Fayence from the other direction, the north. Wow. Uh, so there That's is nice. some amazing <laughs> talent that uh, I can only strive to achieve. And speaking earlier of uh, maintenance, you said season. Have you done any recent updates in your cockpit? Uh, the, the last update I did was uh, uh, at the towards the end of last summer. Um, I, I have the LX9000 uh, suite inside my Ash 31. And uh, they've notoriously had problems with their magnetic compass sensor. Uh, it's just always been a problem for them. Um, but, uh, after waiting patiently for years, they completely redesigned that, uh, module as far as I am aware. 
and uh, I finally got mine and I was able to install that and uh, finally got all of the magic that the LX9000 was capable of doing, getting it to work out perfectly. Uh, the most important thing is uh, wind information. And this is before Hawk came out. I have not played with Hawk yet. I've read all about Hawk. Uh, if your listeners are not aware, Hawk is uh, LXNAV's brand new wind calculation, and it looks like it's going to be a game changer. Uh, in the mountains, uh, the wind is continuously changing, and uh, you can't rely on just general GPS calculations and typical calculations that the, the computers have used in the past to get that really accurate wind. Uh, so I'm not, I just got my magnetic compass module installed, and I'm very happy with it. But then Hawk comes out and now, you know, you're asking your wife if you can spend another couple thousand bucks to buy a brand new toy. So that's going to be my, if I achieve my goals that I, my soaring goals, uh, if I achieve them this season, that'll be my birthday present, Christmas present, anniversary present all wrapped into one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just Soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro Sailplane Simulator Cockpit, would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI-sanctioned aviation esports event in history, the Sailplane World Grand Prix, which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. If you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. Also, uh, in the off-season, you know, another regular activity is just taking care of the finish of the glider. What do you do on your glider, and how do you approach the love and care of gel coat or PU, depending on what you have? Yeah, I've got the uh, polyurethane paint on uh, on my Ash 31, and uh, I'm, I'm not aware of really any controversy as far as... Uh, uh, the right, a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Uh, gel coats, a, a, a bit trickier just because it's been around so much longer. And I know some people have, uh, procedures that they swear by. Um, but, uh, as, as far as the later generation gliders, there's pretty much a, I don't want to say just one way of doing it, but, uh, I, I do it. I, I do it the way everybody else does it. It's just a, I'll call it a three-step process or maybe a three-and-a-half-step process. It just starts with uh, cleaning off the wings, uh, running uh, uh, three passes of a, a medium-grain polish, and then uh, another three passes of a finer polish, and then finally cleaning the whole thing up and putting all the gap seals back on. It, it, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a meditative thing that you can do by uh, taking your glider apart, and there's absolutely no rush uh, it's just that the TLC that you just, you just love, uh, playing with your glider. And that's just the excuse that you can have to, in the off season, just go to the club and see your friends and polish gliders. Exactly. Never a bad day at the airport. Usually. <laughs> that's right. Even when it's pouring down rain, there's always right. a refrigerator with a beverage, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit. Um, I'm excited about this. I want to hear more about it because I've watched, I think, I think I've watched all your videos, if not almost all of them, but can you tell us about your channel for a bit? I just have to say the overall production value 
is fantastic. I mean, from the dramatic intro animation well, to you. those cool edits you're doing, the 360 camera is amazing, and even the music. When did you start doing these videos? I mean, what were your goals for the channel and, and future? What are you thinking about doing in the future? It looks like you really focus on encouraging people to get out there and get out of their comfort zones and do some cross country, of course, with proper training. But Well, I, I'm really excited about the, the attention that I've been getting uh, with my new uh, uh, YouTube video I, videos. I, I, I am very new at it. I've only got, uh, I think, six on the, uh, on the site now. Uh, which is nothing when you compare it to some of the big names that are out there in the YouTube uh, world that have dozens, if not a hundred videos posted. Uh, so I, I'm just totally humbled by the attention that I'm getting with just the, the half dozen that I've posted. Um, uh, the 360 degree camera is just an amazing piece of equipment. It's, it's truly a hands-off camera. Uh, it's even voice activated. So it's just nice. uh, plugged in. And uh, all I have to do is just tell it to start recording when I'm coming into an area that I think uh, people might find interest in. And uh, after I leave, I just tell it to stop. I save all of these files on my computer. And uh, when I have the time, and it's a very time intensive uh, uh, job taking 360 degree camera uh, video and editing it down to just the uh, widescreen format to, to make it as if it's on a, uh, on, on a big rig that's sitting inside my glider somehow. And I've got a team right. of people running, <laughs> running, running the camera. Um, but I, I'm really thrilled with the, with what it's capable of doing. And I just hope that the manufacturers of these cameras come out with much better uh, quality uh, the number of pixels, the, the resolution, that's the word I was looking for, much better resolution. Uh, because right now it's, I think the camera's uh, 6K video, but that's 6K in all directions. So by the time yeah, I yeah, that's edit it down to 1080, we are nowhere even close to 4K. We're probably somewhere, well, 1080, I guess, is the answer. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to mention the music, actually, because for me myself, I mean, it, it's uh, Scott Buckley. Do you know him, or how did you how did you start using his music? Well, that's that's an interesting uh, question. No, I do not know Scott. I've never even spoken okay. to the man. Uh, so, so he is uh, just a person who is, uh, in my opinion, a great uh, uh, composer. Uh, but even better, uh, his audio is free. And when I made my very first video uh, for YouTube, it was not 360. It was just using a, a simple, I think it was a GoPro 6 that I had at the time, maybe right. even a GoPro 2 originally. And uh, I just started fiddling around with the uh, software to do the video edits. And I always loved the idea of like a cinematic uh, type of uh, video. And I actually used a Hans Zimmer track. <laughs> <laughs> so I used a Hans Zimmer uh, track to do this background music for my video, and I posted it to my own personal account. And uh, it took YouTube, I think, three seconds <laughs> to, to ding that with a copyright right. infringement for using Hans right. Zimmer. <laughs> so, I, so I realized that I was going to have to uh, have something legal. And uh, so I started a, a search of the internet for music that was acceptable. And unfortunately, there is just a lot of crap. 
that's out there. Uh, just oh, uh, yeah. that, that, that that's free. You get what you pay for. And then yeah, I stumbled yeah. across uh, Scott Buckley's uh, library, and basically the way his system works is he makes his money in other ways. Uh, one of the ways is Patreon. And if anybody's uh, listening to this and they do appreciate the music, please go over to his website, which is always linked at the bottom of, of all of my uh, videos. Uh, and please contribute to him so that uh, he continues to make some of this amazing music. Um, but basically, uh, for those people like myself that want to use his music on YouTube or in other platforms, uh, we just have to credit him. Uh, I credit him more than a lot of people. He just wants you to have a link in the description to his website as credit. But I give him that credit right, right there at the end of the video right next to me because it's without him, I wouldn't, uh, my videos would not be doing nearly as well as they are. They definitely set a mood that uh, oh, yeah, yeah. cannot be set elsewhere. Well, you know, when I when I watched it and the music came on, I immediately thought about the movie To Fly when I was at the Smithsonian. I was a, mm -hmm. a, just a kid and I watched it, but that's kind of what it reminded me of immediately. So it was, was kind of cool. <laughs> Took me back. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. In, in fact, uh, I'm going to be dating myself, but I remember I was at a contest in the States uh, it was 15, 20 years ago. And uh, one of the mornings uh, before we went to the briefing or at the briefing before the briefing started, uh, a, a video was playing and it was uh, Gladiators of the Sky. And I had never seen that. Uh, I think it was brand new at that point. And it was just that cinematic feel that just was uh, amazing. And one of the many things that I'm trying to do with my videos is to have that thrilling, dramatic, cinematic feel. And I, I do realize that some people disagree with me and I do read their comments, which I do encourage on my videos. And a lot of the comments that I do get are great video, tone down the drama. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> on your videos, I know you do focus on cross country, but speaking of that, how did you yourself train for cross country? I mean, what was the overall process like for you? It seems like there are countless ways to get there and not that glider pilots ever get there, but there are just so many approaches to getting prepared for cross country soaring. So can you tell us about the paths you took along the way? Well, I can absolutely tell you, uh, I, I, I had a reset, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I taught myself, uh, by buying books and, uh, learning how to, uh, set up the cone upside down cones, uh, around, uh, uh, places so that, you know, you're in range and of course all, all that stuff. But it wasn't until I came to France for those first few uh, training courses that I realized that, uh, a lot of the things that I was doing was wrong. Um, uh, just, just to illustrate the point, my instructor at the time, a, a, an amazing man, uh, he is no longer with us. He had a hiking accident on almost 10 years ago. So he didn't die on a glider. He died falling off a cliff while walking uh, in the mountains here oh, in wow. the Alps. Uh, but his name is Michel Trial. And uh, for your international listeners, they will clearly know who I'm speaking about. He was just an amazing man, an amazing pilot. Uh, Baptiste Innocent, the gentleman I was referring to earlier, his instructor was also Michel Trial. So he's a, uh, a legend in his own right and just an incredibly uh, amazing man. And one of the things that he told me early on was, 
and it's alluding to the comment you made, there's always more to learn, is he said, uh, to learn to fly in the mountains takes a lifetime with instruction. Without instruction, it takes many lifetimes. Yeah. <laughs> His point being <laughs> oh, that uh, if you don't get the instruction, you're not going to live long. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. It, wow. That is absolutely true. So uh, there, there are some things that you can teach yourself. One example is how to make a video for YouTube. <laughs> but learning how <laughs> right. to fly a glider in the mountains is definitely not something you want to teach yourself. Uh, you no. need to have somebody tell you the things that you don't even know that you don't know. The unknown unknowns. The, there's really only one way to do it, and that's to get instruction from somebody who knows what it is that they're doing. And you can even extend that to flying in the flats. Even if you're not flying anywhere near terrain, uh, if you teach yourself how to fly across country, you're going to teach yourself some wrong things. And uh, uh, one of the things that I subtly make a comment about, I think in each of the videos uh, that I've done so far is the idea of um, what the glide ratio is. Uh, what glide ratio do you need to get to the field? And what glide ratio are you currently getting? If the glide ratio that you're currently getting is not greater than the glide ratio that you need, you're not going to make it to the field. And yeah. a lot of people don't appreciate that subtle little uh, piece of information and the problem is, is that there's a, there's, a, there's a nav box in most glide computers, if not all, and it's called arrival altitude. And you see this in the, in the manuals and you, and you think, ah, oh, arrival altitude. So they just type in their home airport, for example, and they go, oh, I can still make it there with 300 feet to spare. But the problem is, is that that arrival altitude does not mean you're going to get there with 300 feet to spare. It yeah, means right. that the question that you asked and the <laughs> variables that you've included in that equation tell you that the answer to that is 300 feet, but that is not how high you're going to be when you get there. The only way to do it safely is uh, using those glide ratios. And uh, that's, that's the thing that I try to, that's the point that I try to subtly make in each of the videos without being as dry and boring as I just was by being an instructor, because people will tune you out when they start thinking, he's trying to teach me something. I'm not interested. If you do it in an entertaining way, maybe somebody might go, what's this he's talking about? And they look it up. That's, yeah. that, that makes all of it worthwhile. So, I mean, you kind of answered this, but so given your process and your journey to learn cross country, if you had to do it all over again, or if you could just model up maybe in a perfect world, a perfect path for relatively low hour pilots who, you know, they wanted to get out there and start pushing further away from the airfield. Uh, what would you recommend in a perfect world? Maybe the, the uh, well, perfect journey. Uh, I, I know this is not a possibility for everybody. It was not a possibility for me. Uh, uh, which was why I started off with the self-teaching, self-teaching myself method, um, instead of having an instructor at the club who knew how to do it. You have to search it out. You have you have to find somebody to help you. And uh, unfortunately, in a lot of places, that person might be far, far away. But with the uh, internet now, uh, a lot of people are becoming closer and closer together. So you might not even have to, I mean, you, you, 
I highly recommend that you fly with somebody in a glider in order to fly cross country safely. But at a very minimum, you need to be talking to somebody. Do not rely on a book to teach yourself how to fly cross country. So in a perfect world, the answer to your question, go someplace where you can fly with an instructor who is a master at cross country and uh, get, get the instruction that you need. And I use the word instructor, but I don't want to confuse that with a, a certified flight instructor because there's no endorsements or things that you need to get in your logbook for this. You need to fly with somebody who can teach you how to fly. And that person may or may not be a flight instructor. Right, right. Absolutely. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, Go to SoaringAcademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. So what do you think about the growing popularity of using a glider sim program like Condor in combination with the mobile phones or tablets and running something like XC Soar or Top Hat so that the pilots can practice using their flight computers and simulate situations and train? I know our producer Mitch and one of his buddies, Joe, they've been uh, doing this for a couple of months now and they actually take their tablets out of their real gliders and they stick them there on the simulators at, at their home. And I mean, it does seem to be a great idea and a great way to get familiar with the interface stuff while you're safe on the ground. They're, they are a tool. That's, that's the, I guess, the best way I can answer that question is with any tool, uh, it all depends on how you use it. Uh, if you use a hammer when you need to use a screwdriver, uh, it's not going to work out very well. But if you <laughs> use the tool correctly, it can be an amazing thing. Uh, I am all for anything that gets people to play with their glider compute gliding computers while safely sitting in their living room. Uh, when you're in a glider is not the time to be learning how your computer works. You, you need to have your eyes out of the cockpit. And I know when computers first started coming out, a lot of the uh, older generation that always used their charts and uh, protractors in the glider while flying in order to figure this information out. They poo-pooed the new computers because they didn't want people pushing buttons. And right. uh, the honest truth is, is that if that's what you're doing in your cockpit, you're doing it wrong. Uh, you yeah. need to be intimately familiar with your computer before you even get into the glider. And if a, a simulator program like Condor helps you achieve that, then that's a fantastic use of that tool. Uh, it's not the only uh, way you can do that. I've actually never used Condor myself, um, but uh, a lot of the soaring programs in your glider computers are capable of playing back IGC files. So as this IGC file is playing, you can be safely on the ground, either using a simulator on your computer, or you can be using your actual uh, glider computer, and you can start pushing buttons while safely on the ground to figure out all the different modes and all the different uh, uh, settings that uh, your computer has available. So yeah, eyes out, don't look down. Uh, you only need to glance at the computer in order to get the information that you need. And if you're looking at a, a hundred different nav boxes, you need to whittle those numbers down. You don't need all that information. Uh, 
Um, yeah, but yeah, uh, si- simulators can be an amazing tool uh, to get you to be more comfortable with uh, the computers that you have in your glider while you're safely on the ground. Chris, given how intense and intimidating the terrain there in the Alps, do you ever take some time out to drive around and physically, you know, look at some of the landouts that you might lean on during the cross-country flights? And if not, is there a good database of photos and notes from pilots available? I mean, I was, I was talking to Mitch the other day, and he mentioned how every year local pilots go on road trips and they'll look at the conditions and the fields and take pictures any information you know they can find watching some of the landout videos from the alps one thing that looks really tricky to me is trying to figure out what the wind is doing in some of those tight valleys and also gauging the slope of the field can be tricky it seems with all the mountain slopes i'm sorry mountain shadows and the complex terrain features maybe you could just talk a little bit to the listeners about some of the particular challenging things about landing out in mountains and maybe even a story or two from your own experience. Uh, let's, let's try to go back to that. The, the first part of that question, which is uh, going out and uh, walking fields. And the answer to that is absolutely yes. Um, there aren't many places to land a glider in the Alps. And so in order to do it safely, in order to fly in the Alps safely or any mountains, I guess, um, you need to be intimately familiar with those few safe places. So do I go out and walk a few fields? No. Do I go out and walk all of them? Yes. I've been to every single field and walked every single field in the Alps if I put it in my computer as a, as a current uh, bailout. Um, in fact, it's one of the ways my wife has gotten me to do some road trips is uh, uh, she offered to, uh, uh, a few years ago, she wanted to go to Torino, Italy, and I don't remember why at the time, but it wasn't something that I wanted to do at that particular time. And then she dangled the carrot. She goes, we can stop and go look at some fields. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, I'm excited. Like, oh, yeah, there's a there's a field up in the Sousa Valley that I've been wanting to go look at. <laughs> and so we drive hours out of our way just so I can go walking through a field so that I can see the Find, find the best line. Um, but you can find some really amazing uh, surprises, uh, like a, a ditch that just happens to be covered with grass. And so it looks like the field is flat, but there's all of a sudden a three, yeah. four foot deep ditch right in the middle of it. Uh, so those uh-huh. are some things that you'd like to know before you uh, put it in. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the so you, you, you're intimately familiar with all of the fields uh, that you use uh, as, as a backup. And of course, there are some fields that you check absolutely every spring because it's a high probability that you might be in that field. So uh, the, the, basically the fields within the first 50 kilometers of the uh, uh, home airfield are those fields that you check every single spring uh, just to check their condition because as you start ramping into the new season, you tend to push yourself sometimes on days that uh, you probably shouldn't have, and you end up uh, landing out. Uh, you want to make sure that the field that you're most likely going to end up in that season is is clear of any surprises. But other than that, uh, the, the deep valleys uh, in the Alps actually make the decision of which way to land in the field Easy, and this is going to sound bizarre to uh, uh, some of your listeners that uh, have never flown in the mountains. 
but you land downhill. It's, it's, it's not intuitive. And it's because the sun heats the slopes of the mountains so much that it pulls air up out of the bottom of the valley. And once that valley in the bottom of the valley uh, gets that low pressure, it pulls air in from the mouth of the valley. And so when you get low uh, in a valley, the wind really picks up going up the valley or opposite the flow of a river, if there happens to be one in that valley. And so you're going to be landing downhill, but with a very strong headwind. And sometimes uh, you really wonder, should I be doing this? Because the slope is, you know, sometimes close to 4%, 5%. And, you know, you're thinking your glider is just going to fly right off the end. Uh, but the wind can be so strong that if you go the other way, your, your ground speed is going to be 50% higher than what you normally oh, wow. have. Uh, now, of course, I have to put the caveat in for the, the uh, people that are listening is, is that there are, of course, exceptions to what I just said. And uh, this is not a rule that is written in stone. But as a general rule, you are landing down valley in the mountains. Hmm. Makes sense. And, and oh yeah, you mentioned do, do I do I have a war story? There there is there is a war story, and it's actually oh yeah, the, absolutely the the, 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 the yeah, first yeah. the it might not be the first field on the way out of here, but it is one of the first few fields on the other side of the mountain from uh, Fayence here, and uh, it was uh, early on in my flying in the mountains, and so I didn't quite know where all of the uh, home thermals were, our house thermals. And uh, I got low and I didn't want to push my luck because I didn't have the experience. And so I decided to put the glider into one of those fields. Landing was uneventful. It was early in the spring, so it was still a bit muddy. I did not have a very long ground roll whatsoever. And my glider did get stuck in the mud. And a local farmer was kind enough to bring a tractor out and help pull the glider out of the field. But uh, while I was waiting for my retrieve crew, um, there was a little village just off to the side of the field. And so I walked over to the village waiting for my retrieve crew. And there's a little bar. A great. This, you can see where this story is going. And so I'm sitting at this <laughs> bar. There's only two places to sit. And uh, I'm sitting there. I'm working on my post 28 kilometer <laughs> flight. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm, and I'm working on this beer and uh, one of the locals comes into the bar and uh, he mentions to the bartender, he goes, hey, there's a glider over in the field. Did you see it? And the bartender says, yeah, and there's the pilot. <laughs> so it's, you, you become an instant celebrity when you put your glider into some of these fields that everybody comes out and takes a look at the machine. Uh, that kind of reminds me of something I wanted to ask you. So how is your French? I mean, how do you get along? Oh, I'm I'm fluent now, uh, but uh, did nice. not even start learning any uh, foreign language until I was an adult. Uh, it wasn't until those first uh, few uh, soaring training courses when I would come over for a couple of weeks at a time uh, that I even started learning word number one. Um, and so by the time I decided to live here. I had intensive uh, private lessons uh, back home in the, in the States. 
And so by the time I got here, I'll say I had an intermediate academic level of French, which is a very nice way of saying I didn't understand a thing they were saying. <laughs> so it wasn't until uh, I'd say almost two years later, after I had met uh, uh, my first French girlfriend who didn't speak any English and nobody in her family spoke any English. Um, uh, it was basically thanks to that experience of that total immersion that after two years of living here, that's when I became, uh, uh, I'll call my entry level fluency, where, which is the way I decide, def define fluency is when you're able to have a conversation with somebody and you don't translate anymore in your mind while you're doing it. What was the first thing you said to her in French? Oh, that's, that's, you're putting me on the spot there. I, I, I think absolutely, <laughs> a, absolutely the very safe bet was bonsoir. <laughs> Good evening. How are you? Um, yeah, it was, I, nice. it was, it was, it was just a, you know, what, what else, what else are you going to say? You gotta, you gotta be polite. Right. Ah, <laughs> uh, good stuff. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA-approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. We always like to talk about safety here on the pod, and of course, we've already done a little bit of that. But one thing about Europe that's great is all the glider pilots are using farm systems, mm -hmm. it seems. I mean, it's too bad that the adaption rates here in the United States aren't higher, but... What are your thoughts on that and just FLARM overall? Has it helped you avoid a couple of scrapes over the years? Well, it's not just utilized a lot. It's the law. Uh, FLARM is required in order to fly a glider in the Alps. I think there was an accident uh, uh, probably at least five years ago. It might be closer to 10. Um, I think it was, and I think it was up in Grenoble uh, where uh, a tow plane and a two-place glider collided. And so there were three fatalities. And uh, oh, wow. it was that uh, accident that uh, got the French government on board with mandating anti-collision devices in not just gliders, but tow planes as well. Uh, so we all, we all have FLARM. And yeah, the, it, it absolutely does work. Um, the only unfortunate thing is, is that there are limitations with this system. And uh, there are some places where uh, it just won't give you a warning. Uh, because there's terrain in, in the way, for example, because it's a line of sight kind of uh, system. Uh, but yeah, there's there's uh, there are places in the Alps which are very very popular for uh, gliding traffic, um, and uh, one of those places has the nickname uh, the Auto Route, which is interstate. I guess is the best translation. There's an interstate, and uh, at the end of the day, especially on weekends. This is the ridge that everybody in the Durance Valley uses to get home. And so if you are on that wow. ridge on a good weekend, uh, it is, your, your flarm is going to be overwhelmed with targets. It's, they're just everywhere. Oh, wow. uh, fortunately, uh, uh, Fayence uh, is not lined up on that ridge. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to take it if you're coming in from the north. 
But if you're coming in from the Northwest, it really is the best ridge for us as well. So uh, I have one screen on my LX9000, which has nothing other than that Flarm bullseye on it. And when I get on that ridge, I switch over to that screen. So all I see is Flarm targets and nothing else. Wow. Yeah, that's smart. And speaking of scrapes, it, I don't. It wasn't a a, a flarm that that saved me. Uh, I had visual uh, contact with this glider yesterday, uh, and it was right in the beginning of the flight. Uh, we uh, finished our launch, and we were uh, scratching out a faience to get to that in, in that very first thermal. And uh, one of the other pilots that uh, I know very well uh, was in front of me, and she turned and. I was watching her the whole time and I was waiting for her to do a, a, a typical thing where you aim behind the glider. That's the safest place to aim your glider is aim where the glider that you're following uh, has already flown because gliders can't fly backwards. And uh, the only reason why I bring this near miss up is I've never heard a flyer make this alarm before. <laughs> It, it was this very high-pitched, rapid, beeping, uh, loud a warning, which I can only interpret as collision imminent. And uh, she passed within just mm. a few meters underneath me. And uh, I had my GoPro wow. running at the time. So I, I went back and I looked because she went behind me, but very, very close beneath me. And so she flew into my blind spot. I didn't see where she went. But uh, mm. she was close, and all I can say is is that she did see me too. But the way she maneuvered her glider was much closer to me than I would have flown my glider to her. Yeah, well, another uh, much newer piece of tech coming into cockpits are those new high brightness canopy flashers that have an array of high brightness LEDs tucked up into the uh, mm. very front of the canopy between the dash shroud and the canopy itself. These look like quite a good development relative to other glider pilots and also general aviation pilots to be able to have better visibility from distance before things get too late. Um, what do you make of this new glider tech and its increasing popularity there in Europe especially? I, I have a, a relatively new uh, Ash 31. It was manufactured back in 2019 and I have an LED flasher in the leading edge of my vertical fin and uh, I can either just turn it on manually or I can set it to activate when the flarm activates. So uh, uh, generally it's always in that armed mode. So if the flarm says that there's traffic nearby, that LED starts flashing and it really does help because I see other gliders that have it as well. And you can, you can see them much, much earlier. So it is a very good uh, anti-collision device and uh, especially when you're flying in areas with not just a lot of gliders, but other pieces of metal or carbon fiber in the air, uh, gliders are notoriously difficult to spot. And that light, that flashing light really, really helps. So I'm all for it. Reaching back over the years, can you share with listeners perhaps a certain flight or soaring day that, you know, really sticks out in your memory and what made that day special for you? And that can be good, bad, scary, fun. Uh, this might sound a little cheesy, but it was the silver distance. It was that first 50-kilometer flight. Um, it, it's it's kind of like 
your first kiss uh, when you when you when you fly cross country and gliders. Of course, you have some amazing flights, and you have some flights that don't turn out the way that you had planned. But uh, that very very first success, that first fifty kilometer task, that's the one that I, I just remember so uh, wonderfully having achieved that goal. And at the time, of course, I had taught myself and uh, looking back at it, I don't think I did anything really stupid. Uh, but uh, I, I was high enough at the 50 kilometer turn point that I was actually on final glide to get back home. So it was like a three hour flight out to 50 kilometers and turned around and 20 minutes back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's the scariest or most concerning thing that's ever happened to you while flying a, while flying a glider? Um, if you don't really have an oh shit moment, maybe what's something that you give a little extra attention to avoid so you don't have one of those moments? I keep a list. I keep a list of really stupid things that I do. Uh, it's it's not just, uh, uh, and I, I keep several lists. Uh, I always write down improvements and uh, at the beginning of the season or at the beginning of uh, a, a goal that I'm getting ready to achieve, I look back on these things that I've done wrong in, in previous seasons to try not to repeat them. Uh, most of them aren't dangerous, uh, like, oh, crap moments, but just mistakes. But yeah, we all, we all have the oh, crap moments. And uh, I, I have absolute respect for the uh, people who choose to fly in contests. I stopped flying contests years ago um, just because... I was always doing stupid stuff. Uh, and, and I look back on it and I go, why? Why did I push myself into that situation uh, when I didn't have to? And uh, I'm, you know, we tend to be a very competitive group of people. We tend to be A-type personalities. And we, we, if we declare a task, we want to do the task. And if we're entering a race, we're not entering a race to lose. We're entering it to win. And uh, in each of the races that I've flown, there was absolutely one thing in particular that uh, I looked back on and I went, why did I do that thing? And uh, so I decided that the uh, safest thing for me and for my family is to not fly in contests because I push myself to do not necessarily smart things. Um, you know, some people might go, yeah, this guy's nuts. He doesn't fly contests, but he flies in the Alps. <laughs> and I, and I can appreciate that, uh, at that point. But, uh, once you learn how to do something, it's not, it's no longer nuts. Uh, it, it, you know, you, you have yeah. airplane pilots, for example, that look at glider pilots and they go, you guys are nuts. But then the glider pilots know what know, know what they're doing. They're like, no, there's nothing dangerous with what right. I do. But those cross country glider pilots, they're nuts. And then the cross country glider pilots, they go, well, we know what we're doing. We're not nuts. We're fine. But those guys that fly in the mountains, they're nuts. You know, so it, the bar is always moving, and yeah. people are always pointing to right. the next person in the queue who's nuts. Uh, yeah. And uh, so oh. after. Uh, more than a decade of flying in the mountains and uh, again, not to beat the horse dead, uh, but getting the instruction that you need and going slowly and uh, learning incrementally and, and not just going out 
and having a flight like I had yesterday from the Mediterranean Sea to the Matterhorn, uh, you, you don't do that on day number one. You, you, you don't even do 50 kilometers on day number one. You stay, you stay local. You, you keep a 10 to 1 glide ratio back right. home so that you stay safe. And once you start yeah. getting the knowledge that you, that you need to have and you're able to uh, uh, apply that knowledge slowly and over years, you're able to build up uh, a library of experience that allows you to do some of these amazing flights that uh, you just see people like Baptiste Innocent do that uh, is just the, the, the number one pilot in the mountains as far as I'm concerned. Okay, Chris, before we get into the lightning round, we always oh, no. give guest pilots a chance to give a shout out to the various people in their soaring world whether that's cross-country buddies, former instructors, airport operators, family, what's your shout-out? Uh, I'm just going to keep it to the, the number one person on the list. That's my beautiful and loving wife, Simona. Uh, it's, it's rare in this world when you meet somebody that understands a passion. And when you have a passion like I have and many of your listeners have of uh, soaring, to be able to understand that it's not just when you want to go soaring, it's when the weather tells you that today's the day and understands that, you know, why didn't you do the flight last week when we had all this time? It's because today's the day, the weather is today. And uh, Simona totally understands that and gives me the latitude and the room that I need in order to, uh, uh, to live this lifestyle, as you said earlier, living the dream. Um, it really is not possible unless you have a partner in life who is willing to give you all the room you need in order to fulfill your passion. And so that's the answer. Amen. Amen to that. All right, Chris, let's have some fun. How about okay. the lightning round? Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a question, then you give me an answer. And if you don't want to answer that question, you can pass and we'll go to the next one. All right. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America. And they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes, be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean, a friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. So not necessarily the most modern or whatever, but which of these planes is your favorite to fly if you had to just pick one briefly? Boeing 737, the 767, 787, or the Airbus 350 or 321? Ah, oh, none of the above. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, uh, as, as, as I tell people... Uh, at the club that, uh, you know, when they ask me about uh, how much I must love flying the 757 and 767 uh, back in the States, they're all the same. 
whether you're flying a 737 that was built on a design over 60 years ago or the state-of-the-art Airbus 350, which is basically a flying computer, they're all the same in the sense that when you're looking out the window, the view is the same. And uh, you, you push a button and you fly to the destination on autopilot. And of course, there's much more to it than that. But it's soaring that is my passion. Uh, it's just I, I, the analogy I have is the difference between a cruise ship and a sailboat. You know, when the, when the captain of a cruise ship has his time off, he goes out with his uh, 30-foot sailboat. And uh, that's his obsession. And uh, soaring is mine. Your favorite glider port accommodations, tent, RV, or your local flea bag motel? Okay. It wouldn't be tent. I've done that, and I don't want to do that anymore. Um, flea bag hotel, that's what I did when I was flying contests, but I was always dreaming about being one of those guys with the RV. Uh, for no other reason nice. that when you're uh, at the flea bag hotel, you might be an hour away from the gliding venue. I know it was an absolute ding in my uh, competition of having to drive an hour each way uh, each day to uh, to get to the field. Whereas those guys were in the RV, they got two more hours of time off and uh, two hours yeah. that you desperately need to to regenerate and get ready for the next day. If you could fly your glider at one bank angle other than zero, what would it be? 40. <laughs> that was an easy one. <laughs> I, I, I learned that that was a question that uh, was asked to me uh, many years ago. Uh, what is the optimum bank angle to thermal? And uh, believe it or not, there is a mathematical answer to that question. Uh, and, the, and the answer is 40. Uh, that the question becomes, how do you know you're at 40? How come, how do you know you're not at 35? And how do you know you're not at 45? How do you know you're at 40? And there's also a mathematical answer to that as well. It's 20 seconds. If you are in a typical glider flying at a typical gliding speed, and you are trying to thermal at the perfect bank angle, all things being equal, uh, you want to be 40 at 40 degrees of bank. And it takes 20 seconds for your glider to do a 360-degree spiral at 40 degrees bank. Interesting. What's your lowest save from land out? <laughs> oh, that's actually, I don't know if I want to say that one. I should probably pass because uh, I don't want people to know this. No, no, I'll answer just because if I, if, I, I wouldn't believe my, you guys might call BS on me, but uh, this is true. I was... Again, getting ready for a contest, <laughs> and uh, one of the skills you need to have when you're when you're flying a contest is low saves. Um, and uh, I was uh, at my home glider port, and I was in a very safe position just off the uh, approach end of the runway, and I was just working my way lower and lower and lower, thermaling. I'll, I'll I'll say the number: two hundred and fifty feet off the ground. I was at two hundred and fifty feet off the ground. And uh, I hit a little bit of sink, and that was it, in for the landing. And I come in for the landing, and as I'm passing over wow. the numbers, <laughs> as I'm passing over the numbers, I get into mountain wave. <laughs> and I just slowly just 
I'm milking it down the runway and my glider is starting to climb again. And it was a very, very long runway. So I could oh, at any no. point just <laughs> land, but it just kept going up and up and up and up. And eventually I was back up at 250 feet again. So I started working the lift and I went all the way back up. So it was over the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could fly a fully fly-by-wire glider, would would you or do you like the old school controls? I think you have to have the old school controls. Uh there is so much feel that uh is being transmitted to you from the outside to the inside. For example, if you're in a, in a if you're approaching a thermal and you don't know which way to turn left or right, you might feel an aileron bump one way, or you might feel a wing bump one way, and it's that feedback that you need to have in order to know the thermals to the right. Like on a, on a blue day, uh, if it lifts the right wing, you know you need to roll to the right or the opposite direction that the glider is rolling uh, from the lift. And uh, if you have a fly by wire. A glider, you're not going to have that sensation transmitted to the stick. You're just, you just, you just won't feel the thermal or the lift if you're flying a different source of lift. I agree. If you had to pick just one thing, and well, you do, since it's a lightning round. <laughs> if there is one area glider pilot should focus on more to improve safety, what issue or area would that be? Ah. Uh. I, I am a stick and rudder guy through and through. Um, basic glider control is what everything else is is resting on. You're, you're not going to be able to thermal well if you aren't maintaining pitch, bank, roll, coordination, all of the above. On, I, I don't fly very often anymore with somebody else. I, I don't teach primary students anymore. So it's just the uh, advanced uh, people that are already licensed. When, when I see somebody that has difficulty thermaling, it's always 100% of the time traced back to basic stick and rudder skills of being able to maintain the pitch where it's supposed to be, the bank angle where it's supposed to be, the airspeed where it's supposed to be, the coordination where it's supposed to be. If that's not the factor, the number two item on the list is just situational awareness. Uh, again, using the thermal uh, as uh, the example, um, you have to have always an image in your mind of what the thermal is doing around you and which direction it is from you. And it's always moving. So the answer to that question is always changing. You continuously have to position your glider into the lift, um, which is not going to be a perfect circle over and over and over and over again. You're always going to have to nudge the glider one way or the other. And if you don't have the situational awareness of where it is, you're going to lose track of it and you're going to just get popped out. What do you think is the main thing that you see that holds local flyers back from getting into cross-country flights? Inadequate instruction or in not having instruction available, not having uh, a cross-country glider available. We, we can spend an entire episode, at least an episode, talking about uh, how, how, we, how we can improve uh, the accessibility uh, to cross-country soaring. Um, I, I just 
mentioned the obvious ones, like having an instructor available, having a glider available, having a glider available all day long. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that uh, I see at small clubs. They, they feel as though that uh, we need to share gliders. And that makes sense, especially on like a, a weekend where you have five people showing up and they everybody wants to fly the glider. And so you put time limits on it. And so you can fly the glider for an hour or two hours or whatever your particular club has set as a policy. Uh, but that completely negates any chance of flying cross country. So uh, when I was a member of a small club uh, in West Texas, the way we got around that is, yeah, on, on weekends that, you know, we need to share. But if, if you want to fly across country, uh, you can uh, coordinate with a tow pilot and an instructor and come out during the week and you can have the glider all to yourself all day long. Uh, so club policy is, is, is the hidden uh, demon in all of that that holds a lot of people back is that the club policy is either flat out no cross country ever in a club glider or uh, club gliders aren't available for the amount of time that you, you need or on the day that you want to fly. If the weather says yes on Thursday, but you're a Saturday, Sunday only club, uh, you can't fly it. Okay, if if you were limited to flying one glider the rest of your, of your life, what glider would that be? Uh, the glider that I have now is my dream glider. Uh, it's not my first glider. It might not be my last glider. Uh, probably won't be. I'm still young. Uh, but uh, when I placed my order for my Ash 31 MI, it was the glider of my dreams. The The picture that I got uh, taken of me on delivery day when I went up to the factory and uh, saw this shiny new glider and a shiny new trailer and a shiny floor. <laughs> it was a dream come true. So if I was forced at gunpoint to stick with my Ash 31 MI for the rest of my life, uh, I wouldn't be too upset. Nice. <laughs> okay. I have one more lightning round question for All you. All right. What glider port is on your bucket list that you haven't been to yet and you'd like to visit and fly? Uh, I'm going to have to go with Bitterwasser. Uh, some of your listeners might not be aware, but uh, um, Bitterwasser is, uh, I'm thinking it's the number two most popular soaring tourism destination in the world. It's Namibia. Um, there is no terrain down there to worry about, uh, like the Alps, it's wide open, uh, no, no airspace restrictions except for the international borders, um, and just massive thermals and massive convergence lines. Um, 1,000 kilometer tasks are the norm, not the exception. Biggest risk down there is landing out. Not that landing out in itself is dangerous, it's that everything down there wants to eat you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my in fact uh, you were asking me about uh speaking french earlier uh in in french when they say uh to to land out uh it's not nearly that boring it's much more colorful the french say when you land out you go ovash uh, which means to the cows so when you land out you're going to the cows and uh, the joke with uh, Bitterwasser in Namibia is if you're flying in Namibia, you don't go Ovash, you go O Lion, which is to the lions. 
<laughs> it just not, doesn't sound like a great place you want to land out. <laughs> and no. Oh. oh, Chris, it's been a lot of fun talking to you, catching up with you. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Definitely going to keep an eye on your YouTube channel stuff. Um, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Keep that uh, 360 camera with you. That's, that's some, some good stuff. But yeah, thanks. It's been really great talking to you. Well, thanks very much, Chuck. I, I absolutely in, enjoyed uh, uh, our conversation. And uh, uh, yeah, thank you so much for the kind words about the YouTube channel. Uh, I don't get videos uh, posted as often as I'd like, uh, uh, but uh, uh, I, I have read some of the comments that you know, refer to uh, the final soaring doesn't get videos out often, but when they do, they're well worth the wait. So I'm, I'm, I greatly appreciate your kind words. I absolutely plan on having many, many more videos coming for many, many more years. Uh, and I'm going to be branching out soon, uh, not just uh, eye candy drama, but more into uh, the subject matter that you and I were just discussing today, more instructional type stuff. I'm still going to have the eye candy stuff for the people that uh, want to watch. And I got some great footage yesterday of the Matterhorn. So your viewers, if they're interested, can expect to see a Matterhorn video coming in the not too distant future. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Nice. And you can uh, share your, make sure you share those on Facebook to the Soaring the Sky Facebook group. Absolutely. I, I absolutely will. All right, Chris, take care. Um, I'll probably bug you again. We always like to have our guests back on the podcast in the future to find out what they're doing, what they've been up to, and where they've been flying. All right. I, I, I am excited to come back. I'd love to have more conversations with you and for all of your listeners. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here and thrilled that uh, you guys are interested in having, uh, uh, having me on. I'd love to come back. And, you know, I'm, I'd probably go a step further because we've been doing this a lot. I think Mitch should talk to you about it a little bit. But, yeah, be be great to have you as a guest host too. We've been having a lot of fun with that. <laughs> that sounds that sounds fun. Uh, I might be able to come up with an idea or two. But uh, yeah, thanks. That's that's uh, that that would be an honor. Great, awesome. All right, we'll keep in touch then. Will do. Thanks for having me on. You have a great day, Chuck. Look forward to hearing from you soon. Hi everyone, Sergio from Sorry Master here. Today we are going to talk about the importance of effective centering when tumbling. Tumbles are anything but a steady tube of rising air as many might think. A tumble is an air parcel with an ever-changing shape and radius as it climbs. In fact, tumbles are often composed by different thermal cores, which gather up at a certain height to form the so-called thermal. These cores are updraft or bubbles with a greater vertical velocity than the air parcels, and they keep on climbing inside the thermal, just like the bubbles of a lava lamp. The vertical speed inside the thermal also varies. It is stronger at the center and it reduces near the edges of the thermal, and of course, it will not be uniform. The vertical speed will also change with height, that's why it's so important to keep on effectively centering and recentering the thermal with each turn. Otherwise, your climb rate will reduce as your sailplane is pushed to the sides of the thermal due to one of the stronger cores. And in a few seconds, you will be out from the strongest part of the thermal at that specific height, uh, thus reducing your climb rate. That's why it's so important to keep on using your centering technique 
and paying a lot of attention to the varial trends. Thermaline requires constant attention to the sailplane's bank angle, varial readings, and wind direction. Creating a mental image of the updraft shape from the varial reading is a must for you to shift the center of your next turn towards stronger readings and maximize your vertical speed when climbing. Summing up, apply your centering procedure for the entire time when tumbling. Use your GPS to assess the wind and the concentricity of your turns and create a mental image of the thermal to make your centering process easier. These three tips will greatly improve your tumbling. For more tips, follow me on Instagram at SurreyMaster or check my website, surreymaster.com. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, Contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.